Insiders, and a very pleasant good afternoon to you, wherever you may be. This is your host, Bruce Ash, along with good friend and co-host... Ed Wilkinson. Welcoming you and joining you live <laughs> from my secure location in an underground bunker located in the heart of Coronado, California, where thousands of patriots live free in this little village by the Pacific Ocean. Thanks very much for tuning in to this special edition of Inside Track. Thanks again yep. for tuning in today. I hope you braved the heat this past week, and I also hope you brave the heat again this uh, the week prior to that. We've got beginnings of monsoons starting with some spotty sprinkles, and forecast looks promising for the upcoming 4th of July weekend with some significant rainfall. According to producer Tom, it should be every day. Tom, I hope you're right. A quick pitch for a helping hand in support of the work of Sister Jose Women's Shelter here in Tucson. We're reaching out to all of you listening today. Please help Jean Fedigan and her staff at Sister Jose keep these ladies safe. You can drop off cases of drinking water for the women at 1050 South Park. That's on Park Avenue, just north of 22nd Street. For those of you who can't make it to their center building, you can direct your monetary gift to the ladies online at www.srjoseewomensshelter.com. Dot com. Sister Jose is helping nearly 1,000 homeless females in our downtown and making a difference. We hope you'll help out today because it's going to be a long, hot summer. When you donate to Sister Jose, you can provide the homeless women of Tucson access to showers, laundry, meals, clothing, shoes, and above all, a compassionate community in which they can develop resources and confidence to live a sustainable life. Bruce and I hope you'll help Jean Fedigan and her great group of professionals and volunteers at Sister Jose. We'll have Jean on the show soon so you can hear from her about the needs of these vulnerable women and the good works performed by Jean and her angel helpers at Sister Jose. We welcome your calls at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus Hotline, 790-2040. The show's better with your participation. I believe have another spectacular show for you today. In just a moment, we'll chat with former two-term AZ GOP state chair and former treasurer of the RNC, Randy Pullen, about the Maricopa County vote audit. And in our final segment today, we'll go deep with best-selling author Don Ritchie about his new best-selling book about the father of modern-day muckraking journalism, Drew Pearson. His new book, The Columnist, has just been released by Oxford Press. Bruce. This portion of Inside Track is brought to you by my co-host, Ed Wilkinson, and his fabulous partner, Gary Imus from Imus Wilkinson Investment Management, whose baby step approach to your wealth management is designed so you never have to solely depend on that socialist security program. Eb manages family wealth for my sister and does a fabulous job. Call Eb today. You can even reach him today, 777-1911, and let him help you also. Hey, since we last met, uh, the U of A men's baseball team lost two games in the College World Series, and their head baseball coach, Jay Johnson, to the LSU Tigers. Uh, lots of new coaches uh, coming, it looks like, at the University of Arizona. And I'm not going to talk about the Phoenix Suns because I don't want to give them the Kenahura uh, in their best <laughs> of seven series with the Clippers. Game four tonight in Los Angeles, enough said. And, uh, hey, Kamala Harris tripped to the border this week for a quickie photo op 
a taco salad, but she accomplished little else because she avoided where the real border problems still fester in the lower Rio Grande Valley. Maybe next time, Kamala. On Thursday, Tucson police arrested 30-year-old Nathan Beaver for the desecration of the Chabad Center on the river a few weeks back. Uh, look, we bang a lot on TPD here on Inside Track as well as other KVOI shows. But none of us doubt the professionalism and the hard work of our men and women in blue at Tucson Police. Uh, good work, uh, and, and thanks to TPD for helping bring the accused to justice. Now, if we could just get the city council uh, to oh authorize and pay for more police on our streets. Absolutely. Yeah, really. Um, lastly, before we go to break and speak with Randy Pullen, our, hunk, our heart goes out to the families and friends of the 159 missing persons in the Surfside, Florida condo building that collapsed this past week. You can help the effort by giving to the Salvation Army or by calling the Aventura Jewish Center at 305-614-1919. That's 305-614-1919. Just at the, uh, at the, at the what was Charles called? At the it? speed of the pen. The speed of the pen, 305-614-1919. You know, it's a small world, but my brother-in-law, Ken, has done business with one of the missing residents in the building. He had talked with her just a few days ago. Wow. Very, very tragic. Um, hey, Mr. Producer, just a minute, we'll go to our first break. And when we return, I hope uh, we'll have Randy Pullen on the line to uh, join us. Uh, you're listening to Inside Track. Stay tuned. Eb and I will be back in a jiffy. I'm proud to welcome my good friends at Tucson Iron and Metal Retail to Inside Track as an advertiser. Jamie Kipper and her staff are conservation experts. They sell round and square steel tubing, metal plate and roofing materials, as well as new and used steel, aluminum, and stainless steel to ranchers, artists, Interior designers, roofers, and do-it-yourselfers, just like all the listeners here. Tucson Iron and Metal Retail is open Monday through Fridays, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. and Saturdays, 8 a.m. to noon. Tucson Iron and Steel Retail, 701 East 36th Street. Call 520-209-1576 or go to TucsonIronRetail.com. And when you do call, mention this ad and receive an additional 10% discount on their already great prices. It's termite season. Fear the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. Go blue at Essential Pest Control. We'll eliminate those bugs, bees, and termites. And stop paying too much to that national provider. Buy local for great service and affordable rates. Call Essential Pest Control because termites fear the blue. Ah, run for your life! Call for the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. 886-3029. That's 886-3029. Or check online at EssentialPest.com. Ask not... What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that, one family at a time, with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911, 777-1911.
And we're back. Bruce, we don't have Randy. Well, uh, we're going to keep trying. I did uh, just send him a text. Uh, Eb, go ahead. Uh, we'll carry on. Sounds good. So uh, one of the things I want to talk about is uh, Biden claiming that you can't buy a cannon under the Second Amendment. I don't know what rules he was reading, but when he says you can't buy a cannon under the Second Amendment, that's absolutely false. Not only that, but when the uh, when the uh, colonists went to war against the Britons, the Brits, they brought their own cannons. Those weren't supplied by the government, Bruce. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, George Washington, I know, bought some, and I think others uh, did as well, didn't they? They did, and they brought their individual cannons, they brought their individual firearms to this. So when him, with him saying you can't buy a cannon, I know several people that own cannons. I'd love to own a cannon also, I just don't know where I'd put it, I don't have any room at the house. Aren't you kind of high up on a hill? Couldn't you, like, lob some shells over oh, into La Paloma? Absolutely. <laughs> hey, we've got a caller on the, the, the phone. Who is it? Charles, is that you? That is me, and I want to reinforce what you're saying. But, you know, people know a lot about what Paul Revere did for a living. I'm sure you know. It's called Revere Copper. But, you know, and by the way, uh, about... Six years ago, the Constitution 44 was resheathed. The original sheathing was done by Revere Copper. Do you know who resheathed it this time? I don't. Revere Copper. Wow. <laughs> but he also Some made people, he yeah. also made cannons. That's right. And if you go to his house, which is on, I believe they call it the Patriot Walk in Boston, sort of a trail within the city there of various uh, various. Uh, um, historical things like like Frannel Hall and a few other places like that. One of the things you'll see in front of his place is a 32-pound mortar, and he made it for the civilian market. Perfect. So, Mr. Biden's uh, statement that you couldn't buy a cannon and there was something in the Second Amendment about that is, is, is made a lie of by the very fact that's on display in Boston publicly. And, 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 I mean, this is Boston. There's a public display of a privately manufactured cannon for the private, actually, mortar for the private. Um, the cannon has a longer-range mortar. is a short-range, more anti-personnel weapon. And, and the, which is even, even better makes the point that either Mr. Biden is reading from the wrong teleprompter or the wrong people are loading it, or he can't tell what he's reading. And I'm not sure which. Wow. Well, you can legally shoot a cannon or a mortar in Massachusetts today. Of course, you need I a love it. You, you need a license of competency to shoot it. You have to pass an exam, and the license is valid for five years. And there's no fee for the license or the renewal of that. I want to know who the cannon certifiers are. I need to have those people on the radio. Yeah, I don't know, but it's a it's a it's a blast. It certainly <laughs> is. You know, in California, there is no restriction whatsoever on cannon ownership if it's a muzzle loader. You can legally own unregistered. There's no require in California where Bruce is right now in Coronado. You could have a twelve pounder or a long 24-pounder that could reach out into the bay 
<laughs> at every from your house roof at every military installation that exists in California, and it's legal without registration. Isn't that great? And by the way, I just looked it up. The Fire Safety Division licensing organization for uh, the state of Massachusetts is the uh, underlying certifier. We've got to come up with an acronym for the word cannon that makes something funny that you can say on the radio. <laughs> well, if, if Harry Alexander is listening, and uh, sometimes he does uh, have a chance yeah. to do that, uh, Harry is actually our cannon specialist uh, here in mm-hmm. Tucson, uh, and uh, he has several uh, small, uh, very small, but functional cannons that when he goes to his pirate conferences uh, every so often, uh, he's able to fire with some accuracy, and uh, he's uh, quite a competitor in the in the uh, cannonade uh, trials. I did not know that about Harry. Yeah, he did. He did back in the uh, in the good old days. He's a black, big black powder guy, and we used to have a sand bucket in the studio that we could shoot in live on the radio. And I'd shoot a forty caliber in it, and it'd go in about four inches. And Harry'd take out that thirty six caliber percussion that he oh carried. Oh my God! All the smoke. <laughs> And pop, yeah. <laughs> they call it a smoke wagon for a reason. And he'd pop one off into the bucket. And darn if that round ball, 36 caliber, didn't go eight inches deep in the sand when a 40 caliber ball round only went in about four inches. It was pretty. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, well, that, yeah, the, the, I guess the, that is the, good, the good news, radio. Mr. Buck, yeah, it is. Uh, the Second Amendment, if it bit him in the nether regions. Well, for him to threaten Americans with F-15s and nukes, it, it, Charles, that I just I'm baffled by that. Well, yeah, the I'm other not. the other thing, ahead, fellas, the other thing, the, getting off of uh, uh, Second Amendment for just a second, <clears throat> but our uh, friend uh, Mr. Biden, uh, this past week he repeated uh, what he did uh, after we left Vietnam. Um, after our uh, departure from Vietnam, uh, he voted against uh, giving uh, citizenship and sanctuary to the Vietnamese interpreters and other advisors within the government uh, whose life were put in danger uh, when the communists took over that country. Um, so he, he uh, did that to them. Uh, then when the vote came up um, later, uh, he abstained. Uh, and now uh, Mr. Biden... Uh, is refusing to bring the Afghan volunteers who helped us uh, for the last 17 years uh, in that country, helping U.S. forces, uh, saving American lives, and uh, making sure that we had uh, local intelligence uh, there during those battles. Um, you know, he, this, this guy, you know, Robert Gates said it very well a number of years ago, uh, fellas, um, he hasn't made a good foreign policy decision or I will add, by paraphrasing, he hasn't made a good Second Amendment uh, argument in over fifty years. No, he is not. And and yeah, I want to go ahead. No, the the fact that he is not, that he's actively working against bringing in the Afghans that helped us out when they were essentially promised, "You help us out, we'll get you here to the states." That's a problem. That is a major, major problem. Now. If they came over from Mexico, they'd also get free housing. But, you know, they got to get to Mexico first. Oh, we ought to do a fundraiser, get the Afghans to Mexico, then lead them with a big flag. Oh, they can wear those Biden let me into the U.S. T-shirts that uh, somebody graciously printed up. 
Yeah. And and we ought to make a we ought to make a resolution that Afghan accented Spanish is the is the, is the official language of the Southern United States. <laughs> wow! <laughs> wow! You know, I do want to take I do want to take issue though with one thing that uh, Bruce just said, and I really kind of think it's it's almost a little bit insulting. You referred to Mr. Biden as our friend. Don't you think? Don't you think that's really being abusive of the language of friendship? I think he's being abusive to the friendship uh, that uh, he feels that he has and the unity uh, that he's talked about uh, from from the time that uh, his election was announced uh, back in November. Um, everything that he's done uh, has uh, led to the current uh, toxic environment that exists in the United States today, Charles and, and Ab. Uh, oh. I, I can't help but believe uh, the guy who uh, promised to be a moderate, the guy who promised to be a unifier, is leading us down the track that we currently are going. Speaking of toxicity, I once ran into John McCain when I was at the airport, and uh, he, and he said, hello, my friend, and I don't think he liked my response. I said, Senator, I don't think I want to be accused of that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. He didn't like me you know, very much. He, re- he remembered yeah, well, it, too. <laughs> um, you know, you're not the only one who felt that way. You know, yeah, the only know. one, you know, you're talking about Biden and the things that he promised during the election and everything else. The only one who was, there were two people that were honest about they said about what they said. Uh, number one was uh, 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 Bert the Irishman O'Rourke, who said, hell yes, we're going to take your guns. Take your guns away. Yeah, absolutely. He was absolutely honest about who he was and what he said. Yeah. And the other one was Bernie Sanders, Bernie you know, Sanders, the, the socialist. Yeah. Here's a guy who yeah. never lied about what he was, who never lied about what he wanted to do. So in an odd way, you can cr- trust the socialist more than you can the Democrat. Yeah, and Bernie's one of the few non-hypocrites in either the Senate or the House of Representatives. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, yes, absolutely. All right, have a nice day, guys. Hey, Charles, 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 before you go, are you planning to have a 4th of July celebration this year? Yeah, oh, thank you so much for reminding me. Yeah, at 2 p.m. on Sunday, July the 4th, we're going to meet in front of the Udall, the the main building of the Recreation Center under the shade of one of the trees there. We're only going to do the reading of the Declaration. People have asked about the movie. The venue wasn't available, but I think some people sometimes miss it. Yes, it's fun to get together and have camaraderie and fellowship and see a fun movie. Yes, that is fun, and yes, that is good, and yes, the air conditioning works there very well. But the main feature of the of the Fourth of July was always the reading of the Declaration. Everything else was icing on that cake. So we're just going to have the cake without the icing on the Fourth uh, of July, two p.m. in front of Udall Recreation Center. I got a bunch of copies of the Constitution. Where I've broken it into sixteen little parts, and uh, I'll be passing them out, and we'll just take turns reading them. I always start the first paragraph. And I take the next to the last for myself, my privilege. And then uh, the last sentence about all pledging our lives, our fortune, and our, and our sacred honor. honor we, yeah. all, we all read together. Hey, Charles, before so, you before you go, um, mm-hmm. we, we've got we've got six minutes before the break. Um, let's talk about another hot button right now: critical race theory. Mm-hmm. Now you've studied well, you've studied this a lot. Yeah, I have, and I do a lot of programs about it, and a lot of the derivations of it and and the things from which it derives for America's Fabric, which is on at 8.04 a.m. every Sunday morning. 
So f- give us a real quick primer about uh, critical race theory, what it is, why we care, and who's making money off the damn thing. Well, critical theory originates from the Frankfurt School in Germany and then moved to New York in the 1930s to escape <laughs> Nazism. And because it was, uh, it was communist in its nature, it's a derivative of, of the writings of Marx and Engels as refined by Lenin and refined into a theory from just a philosophy down to a theory. And it, the, the basis of Marxism is to create struggle between various groups of people. Now, they called them classes. Class warfare did not work in the United States because the classes are not pitted against each other. Yes, you have management, ownership, and labor, which have disputes, but they're not the terrible disputes of the time of Marx. And so it didn't work. Trying to get people riled up to revolt didn't work on the basis of class. So throughout the early 60s and into the 70s, Marxists began to transition and, and shift and pivot their issues. There, there's a Zach answer word, pivot. And, and shift and pivot their issues into race struggles and also uh, um, sex struggles. In other words, uh, popularizing, using the struggle of people who were homosexual against people who were straight. And then they began to realize that the race is- issue resonated when you started to see Marxist people, uh, the, the black power movement, embrace Marxism in the 60s and 70s, like the black power salute at the Olympics was an example of that. And so what happened was it morphed from class struggle into race, and then they later they brought a, uh, a fuel truck to the fire by installing the issue of transgenderism. Suddenly, nobody's happy with their genitals. And, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody in America cares who you have sex with or how, provided it's a consenting adult, as long as you don't do it in public and scare the horses. And I don't think people in America care if you have tantric sex with pachyderms and worship plastic fruit, as long as you don't do it in a way that upsets the public morality. We really don't care. So, so basically, yeah. you've got people trying to create a class struggle where none existed, trying right. to... And or nor does exist. Nor does exist. Okay. Yeah. So with that being said, we've got three minutes left. Who wins in this, and uh, who, who makes money off of this? Well, anybody that's in the, the, anybody that's in the, the race complaint business, Anybody the Jesse Jacksons, the, 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 the race business, well, Al yeah, Sharptons. They're kind, of they're kind of passe today. Uh, today you see other people, other organizations coming to the fore, Black Lives Matter. Okay. By the way, did you see that under a lot of pressure, Patrice Cullors, the, one of the three co-founders of Black Lives Matter, resigned from Black Lives Matter under the pressure of having been caught buying three multi-million dollar houses in California. Well, so she much could, for Marxism. Yeah, she can afford to retire now. Well, yeah, <laughs> but there's a lot of organizations, not only are organizations profiting, you can't only ask who profits by this. You've got to ask, how is money channeled by this? And there are large organizations, some Soros-backed organizations and others, which are huge aggregators of money. And then you have people like uh, Zuckerberg, who, who funded 
some of the activities uh, vis-a-vis the election in Democratic neighborhoods, these uh, vote collection centers. Mark Zuckerberg donated $445 million to that effort and largely was responsible. I don't think the result of that election was based on uh, on cheating so much as it was manipulating the, 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 the results by registration. And that's where... Uh, that's where the effort was, and, and, and that's why they're so intent upon not having uh, voter ID, because if everybody has to be ID'd, it makes it much, much harder to, uh, to file phony, uh, uh, phony uh, ballots. Well, I'll, I'll that's t- part yeah. of who protests. Yeah, and I will tell you this. It's good to see parents, both black and white, standing up in school, speaking out against critical race theory. It, it, you well, know, it is great to see that, because both of them, I, both sides get that. I communicate with a lot of the listeners to my program. I give my email address out a lot, and people know how to get in touch with me. And I have people in that audience that say, oh, Marxism isn't a threat. And that's the problem. Those are the younger people yeah, that are oh saying that. They don't hell. have the historical yeah. perspective to know. Anyway, I think the clock is about fitness. Yeah, we're, we're, oh. uh, we're, we've got about uh, 15 seconds till our break. Uh, and, Tom, do uh, you want to take us into the break? And we'll be right back after that. Jamie Kipper and her father, Gary Kipper, from Tucson Iron and Metal. What are they going to see when they come through the gates? So when they come on in, they'll see our building up front. People have free reign to then go out and look in the yard. So it's not a typical scrapyard with a ton of big machinery. We have a couple of forklifts around, but that's about it just to help move material. So when you come in, it's all organized by material, whether it's square tubing, angle iron, roofing. And then there is a pile in the back, which is still organized and easy to get through. But that's stuff that comes over from the scrap. So we're unique in that we get stuff in from the scrap, which a lot of artists and people will like or reuse, whether it's a sink that someone needs for their house. We sell literally anything made of metal. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard. 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. It's termite season. Bugs fear the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. Go blue at Essential Pest Control. We'll eliminate those bugs, bees, and termites. And stop paying too much to that national provider. Buy local for great service and affordable rates. Call Essential Pest Control because termites fear the blue. Ah, Run for your life! Call for the blue trucks from Essential Pest Control. 886-3029. That's 886-3029. Or check online at EssentialPest.com. I'm Eb Wilkinson with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. I don't ever want you to be dependent on government ever again. I want you to become financially independent. You will never, ever have to depend on socialist security for your survival. We are here to guide you to financial independence. That's imuswilkinson.com, 777-1911. That's 777-1911. Hey, welcome back to Inside Track. Bruce is here remotely from Coronado, and Eb is in the KVOI studios. Hey, before we get to Donald Ritchie, now is a perfect time for you to call Corazon Cabinets and get a jump on your next home improvement project. Uh, there's no supply chain problem at, uh, at Corazon Cabinets. Cabinets are available. 
Uh, Joy and Allie have their 6,000 square foot uh, warehouse stacked to the ceiling with cabinets ready for your next home project. Call and speak to the design professionals at Corazon Cabinets. Call them at 488-2266. On to our special guest for the balance of the show today, Donald Ritchie, author of his newest best-selling book, The Columnist, Leaks, Lies, and Libel in Drew Pearson's Washington. The book is available just about everywhere, and it's published by Oxford University Press. I love the review uh, in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I know you might uh, uh, enjoy uh, this topic as well. And when the Wall Street Journal reviews a book, uh, be advised, it is, it's a very good thing to have. In addition to being a well-respected author, Donald had one of the coolest jobs, I think, in Washington, D.C. He served as the historian of the U.S. Senate from 2009 until 2015. Now, Donald, we've never met before, and I, I realize I probably sound like a total nerd, but how <laughs> cool was it being the historian of the U.S. Senate? It was the luckiest thing that ever happened to me. Uh, I was just gotten my degree the year that they created the office, and I went to work for the U.S. Senate. I worked for both parties. I worked for every senator who needed any help. I worked for any reporter who needed any help. And I did historical research way back in the past, but I got to watch it happening as it was unfolding. What was the most unusual request that you received uh, while the historian, whether it was from a member of the press or, or a sitting uh, U.S. senator? Well, I remember a few elections <laughs> ago, someone called me and wanted to know where was the campus of the Electoral College. <laughs> well, well, having been, having been a, uh, an elector in two different elections in 2008 and, and 2016, Donald, I can tell you, um, th there ain't no campus, and you know <laughs> that too. Um, so in addition to his latest book, uh, The Columnist, Mr. Ritchie has also authored the U.S. Congress, a very short introduction by, by Oxford University Press in 2016, and another one back um, a ways before that, Electing FDR, the New Deal Campaign of 1932, that one published by uh, University Press of Kansas. So, uh, Em, why don't you go ahead and take it from here? Sure. Hey, Donald. Good afternoon. Hey, a little primer on the work of uh, Drew Pearson for any millennial listening this afternoon. From the 30s through the 60s, before there was Twitter, no one crossed the journal political line in search of real policy impact with greater fervor than Drew Pearson, the author of the syndicated newspaper column, Washington Merry Go Round. Accompanied by Pearson's mustachio thumbnails image, it ran so widely and for so long that its purveyor became a figure in popular culture. Don, how'd you decide to write the columnist, Leaks, Lies, and Libel in Drew Pearson's Washington? Well, over the years when I worked for the Senate, a lot of reporters would call, I mean, many a day, with questions of new breaking news. They want to know when did this first happen and what was the, uh, the precedence for this and what does it all mean somehow. And as reporters began to interview me, I got interested in how they were getting the news, and I began actually interviewing them. And uh, that led me to write some books about the history of the Washington Press Corps. Uh, my book, uh, the first book ended in 1932, and the second book began in 1932. And about the only person who was in both books was Drew Pearson. He represented both eras. And 
I eventually, when I retired, Pearson's family came to me and said, he's been forgotten. He was famous in his time, but nobody remembers him now. You know, there was a Dallas uh, Cowboys uh, wide receiver who named Drew Pearson that people think of today. And they said, we've got his records, we've got his oral histories, we've got everything you want. Go and write it. We're not going to tell you how to write the book, but, but see what you can find. And I thought, well, that was too good an effort to pass up. And I spent the last five years trying to piece together his career and basically find out whether or not he got the story right. So is it fair to say that Drew Pearson and his Washington merry-go-round was a precursor to today's modern BuzzFeed, Axios, or Daily Caller? That's a very fair description. I think he's the link between the old muckrakers at the beginning of the 20th century and the post-Watergate investigative reporters and today's digital uh, investigative reporters. Uh, He'd probably enjoy it. He'd probably be on the Internet right now if he was still around. Why? So with that being said, why do you think so many people under 50 think Woodward and Bernstein started investigative journalism? Well, we, uh, we Americans have short historical memory to some degree. It has to be in our lifetime, essentially, to, to register with us. And at the, I really began to read his column at the very end of his career, the last two years uh, of his career, uh, and I, then I read his successor, Jack Anderson, who carried on the column. Uh, okay. But, uh, but, he, but gosh, his story is interesting, even for today. Yeah, and Jack Anderson, people don't know this, but at one point, uh, I think Nixon wanted to have Jack Anderson killed, and, well, uh, and Liddy was in on it. <laughs> and to that end, um, President Truman threatened to shoot Pearson right. over <laughs> remarks made in uh, a column about his daughter, Margaret. Yes, people in politics get really riled up when they don't like the press that they're getting. Uh, Drew Pearson was assailed by just about every president of the United States, uh, Franklin Roosevelt called him a chronic liar. Truman threatened to shoot him, and he called him an SOB. Uh, uh, Eisenhower pretended that he wasn't interested in the column, but sent his press co- uh, secretary out to trash him. Uh, he, he was an equal opportunity uh, uh, investigator. He he uh, irked both Democrats and Republicans. Well, the presidents not only befriended him, and they also disparaged him at the same time. Yes, they saw a great advantage in leaking to his column. They sometimes wanted to get news out in advance to test public opinion or to test what was the interest in Congress on those issues. So on one hand, they were leaking information to him. On the other hand, they were calling him a liar for publishing some of that same information. Well, let's talk about the leaks. Nothing new with leaks, is there? No, there have been leaks ever since George Washington was president. It's part of the system, and sometimes it's legitimate, and sometimes, of course, it's, there's some sort of uh, revenge that's going on. Or in, you know, in Washington, D.C., for every person who has a reason to keep something secret, there's somebody on the other side who has a reason to publish it. And it's very hard to keep anything from ever leaking out. Yeah, and Pearson had a stable of leakers, didn't he? He did. He cultivated them. Some of the people he knew... <laughs> Some were people who read his column and called him up or sent him letters, and they said there's something going wrong in my agency or uh, in my, back in my state, and he would send his investigators out to check out the story. Bruce. So, uh, Donald, was there a deep throat in Drew Pearson's world besides the deep throat that talked with uh, Bernstein and, and Woodward? It, he didn't have a single deep throat. He had many deep throats, and they were a very strange combination of people, uh, you know, high-level people in the government, 
cabinet secretaries to low-level uh, government clerks. One of his deep throats was Joe McCarthy. Uh, when Joe McCarthy first came to the Senate, he was a great source for uh, for Pearson and for Jack Anderson, his, his assistant. Uh, McCarthy actually would allow Jack Anderson to listen in on his phone calls to other Republican senators so that Anderson could hear what was going on, but McCarthy could say, well, I didn't leak it to him uh, because Anderson was hearing it himself. It, later, however, during the anti-communist crusade, Pearson fell out with, uh, with McCarthy and uh, began writing very critical columns of him. Jack Anderson said, but Drew, he's our best source. And uh, Pearson said, he may be a good source, but he's a bad man. So describe describe the incident uh, between uh, Senator Joe McCarthy in the cloakroom, I think of a Washington or Capitol Hill uh, place, uh, between uh, Drew Pearson and uh, Senator McCarthy, and, and who broke up that, that fracas? Yes, that was a famous incident in December of 1950. There was a young socialite who had a reputation of throwing parties in which she brought people who were at odds with each other together. It didn't tell them they'd all be at the same party. And when Drew Pearson arrived at her party, uh, she said, oh, by the way, Joe is here. And she seated him at a table with Joe McCarthy. Both of them were outraged to be at the same table at that stage because they had been fighting for months at that point. And uh, during the day, during the night, uh, they began bickering with each other, and there was a lot of give and take. And at midnight that night, uh, Pearson was down in the cloakroom. This was a very posh Soulgrave club getting his coat, and he reached into his pocket to get his change to tip the, the attendant, and McCarthy accused him of going for a gun, grabbed him by the arms, pinned his arms, kicked him in the groin, slapped him in the face. It was pretty violent. And who should step in but the new senator from California, Richard Nixon? And Nixon stepped in between the two of them and broke up the fight. Pearson left right away. Uh, McCarthy said, you should not, shouldn't have stopped me, Dick. Uh, and Nixon said for years after that that he thought he, you know, uh, McCarthy might have killed Pearson if he hadn't intervened. And then he would say, and did it do me any good with the columnist? <laughs> Never. <laughs> so so the ironic thing about the incident, of course, uh, Joe, Joe um, McCarthy uh, wasn't a Quaker, but both Drew Pearson and uh, Richard Nixon came from a Quaker background, didn't they? That's right. And being a Quaker was a very important part of Pearson's persona. Uh, as I studied the, the, the man and I tried to figure out what made him tick, what was how he looked at the world, I came to the conclusion that being a Quaker was probably the most important factor, and it, it, uh, it, it shaped his worldview. But it, it certainly didn't make him sympathetic to other Quakers. The two presidents that he gave the most grief to were Herbert Hoover and Richard Nixon, and they were our two Quaker presidents. Hmm. Uh, you wrote that uh, he had a knack for making enemies, preferably those with big names, who kept him at the center of uh, or kept him at the center of public controversies. He could also invest trivial matters with urgency and present gossip as established fact. That's true. You know, he wrote that column every single day, even weekends and holidays. So sometimes he had to really churn up information to get into it. But it made for a very lively column. Readers never knew exactly what they were going to get. They could get a big story 
or they could get a bunch of short, you know, lesser important stories. They could get something that was amusing. They could get something that was tragic. Uh, it, because of the, the variety of it, it became one of the most popular features in newspapers. And whenever the newspapers did polls to see what readers liked the best, Pearson always came out on the top which really frustrated some editors because they had gotten so mad at some of his columns, they were ready to drop the column. But the reader said, no, no, we really want to watch that and, and read that. And, uh, you know, he, he did make some minor issues into big issues. You know, what kind of uh, – once he said that President Franklin Roosevelt – went off to Warm Springs and forgot to cancel his order of breakfast rolls that he got at the White House, and they began, the breakfast rolls began piling up. Well, it was true. It had happened. It really irritated Franklin Roosevelt uh, because it made him look like he was a spendthrift somehow. Uh, but, uh, but it was fun. It was interesting to read. And also, you know, uh, Pearson would tell you how much money the vice president made at a poker game last week. Well, of course, Drew Pearson was making, I think, seventy-five to a hundred thousand dollars a year at a time when a member of the Senate was making ten thousand uh, dollars. Did that create sort of a uh, a jealousy rivalry between him and and members of of Congress? Not necessarily, uh, because he made a lot of money, but it, he spent a lot of money. He he had a, a crew of young reporters that were worked for him, and he had to pay them. Uh, and he was being sued for libel constantly by politicians and others who claimed that he'd somehow libeled them in, his, in the column. He was sued 120 times for libel, and he won all but one of his lawsuits. But they were extremely expensive. And so uh, he, he made a lot of money, but he also spent a lot of money to, uh, to keep his business going. Uh, he, he also, in fighting with Joe McCarthy, McCarthy urged Americans to boycott uh, uh, the sponsors of Pearson's radio shows, and the sponsor canceled out the program, and Pearson lost half of his income that way. So uh, he, he wasn't quite as rich, but he did live a comfortable life. He had a lovely house in Georgetown and he had a beautiful farm out in, in Maryland. Unfortunately, the farm lost a lot of money because he, he was not a very efficient uh, uh, farmer. So um, you mentioned that he won all of these libel cases, uh, talk about the one case that he lost, and, and also talk about how how your uh, background as a historian helped you write this book. Sure. Well, you know, he, as I said, he was uh, sued 120 times. The first person who sued him was General Douglas MacArthur, uh, and eventually MacArthur withdrew that case. Uh, there are lots of other people they just didn't like what he was writing. They accused him of lying, but Tri Pearson was always able to prove that the information that he provided was accurate. Uh, he, sometimes he made mistakes, but he, he was certainly never malicious in his intent in dealing with that. Uh, but it, as long as he was able to prove the truth of his, his claims, juries always uh, found in his favor. The one case he lost was against a man named Norman Littell, who was actually an old friend of his. Uh, they'd fallen out. Uh, Pearson was very anti-colonial, and Littell became a, an agent for the Dutch government uh, trying to prevent Indonesia become, from becoming independent. And so uh, Pearson wrote critical columns, and he, he got sued. The, uh, the, the jury found in Littell's favor, and Pearson wanted to appeal the case. But his lawyer said, you know, it'll cost you more money to appeal the case than it will uh, cost you to settle it. So why don't you settle it? And he reluctantly did. 
Ironically, the lawyer for Littell was Edward Bennett Williams, a very prominent Washington lawyer, who in the end came to the conclusion that that Pearson was really the the person who got uh, got uh, beaten up in that case, and he shouldn't have lost the case. And and Williams became a very good friend and a terrific source of information for Pearson for the years after that. Uh, you know, my work as a as a Senate historian put me in contact with with politicians for 40 years, and uh, there I I admired them. I worked for them, but you know, it was quite interesting how. Uh, politicians can change their opinions about things very quickly, uh, and they don't like to be reminded about where they used to be on some of these issues. They, they're, they're often very sensitive about criticism, and, uh, and Pearson irked a lot of people over the years. I, I don't want to say that he irked everybody. A lot of people thought he was terrific, they, and they were providing him with information. He was promoting you know, good causes, and, uh, and, and he was a nice man in a lot of ways. Mrs. Kennedy, Jackie Kennedy, once said to him that he was more benign in, in person than he was in print. And people were always surprised after his sort of tough-minded columns came out to meet him. And he was a much more mild-mannered individual. Uh, so I've, I was interested to see how he got the story and how accurate it really was. So before I turn you back over to Eb, I think you may have also written uh, the following. Pearson's formula mm-hmm. for success was what the Saturday Evening Post called aggressive indiscretion, hooking readers with the promise of insider revelations and tales of conflict at the highest levels of government. Pearson told his staff that when people in power betrayed their trust, quote, that it's your job to be ruthless in exposing that betrayal. You must be their watchdog. You must let them know what uh, the publicity penalty is if they fail. Sounds familiar, maybe? <laughs> That's right. Well, it's 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 a good motto essentially for investigative reporters. Uh, Pearson always thought that, that when people put out a press release, he wasn't interested in the press release. He wanted wanted to know the motivation for the press release. What was behind it? What was going on behind closed doors? What you know? And he would always start his columns with saying, "It hasn't been announced yet, but," uh, or, you know, in other words, "I'm going to tell you something that nobody else." Has told you, and in many cases he did. He got information that uh, that wasn't coming out otherwise. Sometimes, again, it was because the government wanted to plant a, you know, have put a trial balloon. Uh, but in other cases, it was because somebody blew the whistle on uh, on someone they felt was was uh, was breaking the law and uh, and, and should be uh, should be exposed. Uh, and Pearson was diligent in. Uh, pulling up that information, especially, as he said, if something didn't smell well. Uh, he always uh, talked about his sense of smell. He said if it didn't smell well, he was going to follow after that story. Hmm. Ed, take it away. Sure. Now, Pearson, when he was young, he was a pitchman for Bromo Seltzer. Was that, <laughs> was, was that in his father's tent show? No, in- uh, his father's was a tent, sh- his tent show was a Chautauqua series. The Chautauquas <laughs> gave... Uh, they had lectures and music. Uh, it was for public education. This is back in the era of Theodore Roosevelt uh, and uh, up into the 1920s. And well, that's still going on in of, Chautauqua now. Yeah, yes, still going on. But this was when Pearson's family was involved in Okay. It. And they, um, 
Pearson used to promote the, the tent shows by organizing parades. This is when he was a teenager uh, and, and getting crowds to come in. Well, he always was a showman as a result of that. He always figured he had to entertain his audience in order to get their attention, to get them to pay attention to what the stories were that he was writing. And so uh, he, he, on the radio, for instance, he would end his news shows by making predictions about what was going to happen in the coming weeks. And, of course, that brought the audiences in. They were sort of curious as to what he was going to predict. And that was pure showmanship. And he signed on with uh, commercials. He was a promoter for Bromo Celsa and other commercials. Uh, and he was quite pleased to do that. And he also appeared in the movies in some cases. Uh, if you've ever seen the classic science fiction movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still, yes. there is Drew Pearson playing a, a radio reporter telling the public that a spaceship has just landed on the mall in Washington. Wow. So, you know, it's interesting that you uh, talk about things like that. Tucker Carlson said some things on his show, which has caused advertisers to boycott his Fox News show. Mm-hmm. Pearson wasn't just a print guy with printer's ink and stained hands. He was also on TV, radio, and the movies. He had some problems about seven decades before Tucker did. Tell us about uh, that. Yes, well, this was uh, the big problem was when Joe McCarthy uh, basically accused uh, Pearson of being a, a communist stooge and basically said anyone who bought an Adams hat, which is the main sponsor, uh, was contributing to the communist crusade. Uh, you know, Pearson was not a communist, and Adam Hatz wasn't a communist organization, but uh, uh, there was enough of a public reaction that Adam Hatz canceled that that, uh, uh, that contract. And uh, Pearson had a very hard time getting other sponsors. As a result, uh, Dunhill Cigarettes decided not to, to sponsor his program. He was too controversial. And so he wound up having to... Uh, to uh, syndicate his own radio shows. He basically taped them each week and sent them out to studios, hoping that he could get local sponsors because he couldn't get a national sponsor anymore. And that uh, that really affected him in a lot of ways. On the other hand, he was very powerful as a columnist because his column appeared in 600 newspapers all across the country, large city newspapers and small rural newspapers. And no one editor or publisher could really control him as a result, and he was free to speak his mind. Is there somebody alive today that can make that claim? You know, I've been asked that question a lot, and I scratch my head. I don't know that anyone has actually risen to fill Drew Pearson's shoes. Uh, on the other hand, there are so many more news outlets today. Uh, things were a little more condensed back in his day. Uh, he was afraid that newspapers were, were closing up. Many of the newspapers that carried his column were going out of business, and he was afraid that there weren't going to be space for critical commentary. He didn't anticipate the Internet uh, and the huge variety of cable uh, television uh, and uh, Internet news services and all the rest of it. So there actually is there's a lot more opportunity to get news these days. The trouble is uh, it's so scattered, and there's not uh, enough of a, of a single market that, that somebody could rise to the level of, of being a Drew Pearson. You know, you, you talk about uh, the fact that he would predict things on his show. Uh, how many of those things came true? He used to say that 82% of what he predicted had come true. He, he kept uh, kept tabs on it. And and if it, anything he did predict came came true, he'd be sure to mention it in a subsequent program. Uh, for instance, uh, 
At one point in 1941, he predicted that the United States would be at war with Japan and Germany by the end of the year, and they were. Uh, and uh, two weeks before, a week before the Pearl Harbor, he he uh, talked about the fact that the Japanese fleet was at sea and no one knew where they were and that this voted uh, poorly. And he uh, that that uh, turned out to be true. He made some mistakes, though. He was he was off on some cases. He was misinformed about things by some of his sources, uh, and, and he always tried to figure out where he went wrong, and he would correct those those things. But as I say, that it wasn't malicious mistakes. They were mistakes because of his haste or his misunderstanding of the particular issue. Uh, he, I never found an instance where he deliberately printed something that he knew to be untrue. The only person that I'm aware of that has been good like that has been Limbaugh, who would come out ahead of time yeah. and say, here's what's going to happen. Hey, um, we're down to the last minute and 30 seconds of the show. Uh, what do you want listeners to know about, and how do they get a hold of your stuff? Well, they, the, the books are there on, in the bookstores, and also that you can get them on Kindle and other ways. I hope uh, people will read it. I hope people will find the book entertaining. Uh, I have to say that uh, Pearson kept me interested for the last five years. I, have to, I got a couple of deep laughs out of some of the things that he, he uncovered and some of the ways he went about doing things. And I think even if you don't know a lot about Drew Pearson, you'll know about the presidents and the people that he was attacking. And I think uh, uh, people will find that uh, surprisingly entertaining. Great. Hey, thank you so much. You've been a delight. Insiders, we're out of time. I hope you enjoyed today's chat uh, with uh, Donald Ritchie, author of The Columnist, Leaks, Lies, and Libel in Drew Pearson's Washington. It's available everywhere, published by Oxford University Press. Next week, we'll broadcast a best-of show for the 4th of July. We've loads of great guests lined up all through July, so you can stay inside, out of the heat, listen to us on Inside Track. Until next Saturday, this is Eb Wilkinson and... Bruce Ash. Thanking you all for joining us and wishing all a very good afternoon. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. What other kind of customers do you have? So our Tucson? biggest customers are actually like ranchers and yeah. people from outside of the Tucson area. They're buying a lot of square tubing. They're buying a lot of stuff for their ranch to close off fences. We'll sell anything from 10 feet to 10,000 feet to somebody that comes in because we have new steel and surplus steel from steel mills. The reason we're able to get such good pricing on some of this stuff is, A, we sell scrap to the mill, so uh, we have a relationship there, and then we can buy material, what they're making, bringing it back, and so we save on freight, and we have relationships for years with them. So I think that's really our niche market. We'll sell whatever you need. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard, 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. What your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country.
Wouldn't it be great if political leaders could create that country again? Learn how to do exactly that, one family at a time, with Imus Wilkinson Investment Management. Call me, Eb Wilkinson. I am US Wilkinson.com, 777 1911.